This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our first story is about a dad named Frank. He came to Denver to be with his son for a week on the streets. Frank, we're not using his last name, knew that his son was in Colorado, homeless and addicted to heroin. He and his wife had tried everything they could to help and felt like they were at a dead end. The only thing I could think of was just go there and be with him and love him, show him how much his family loves him. Frank says now he knows what it's like to have to figure out where to sleep each night, not to have a bed, to sleep with one eye open. The week that I spent there homeless, I averaged like two hours and ten minutes a night of sleep. But when you see homeless people sleeping in parks in the day, that's because they were up all night. After a long, difficult week, Frank went back to San Diego, where he lives, and he wrote an essay about his experience. It landed in the hands of two longtime homeless advocates, and it taught them a lot they didn't know. They're turning the essay into a teaching tool. There's going to be a dramatic reading next week and a panel discussion that follows featuring Frank. We're going to hear from Chris Connor of Denver's Road Home, the city's homeless agency. Connor was the first to see the essay, and he showed it to Pastor Jerry Herships, who serves lunch to the hungry in Civic Center Park. Herships will read Frank's story on stage, and recently he was rehearsing the opening lines. So I'm outside one hot day doing yard work. When I do yard work, I, I relax, I think. And I go inside and I tell Dolores... I got an idea. I'm going to Denver and be homeless. She looks at me like I'm nuts. And honestly, maybe I am. But I love my son. And if I'm honest, I think his days are numbered. Pastor Herships and Chris Connor sat down with me. Chris says he's never encountered anything quite like this. Over the years, over more than a decade of this work, I've had a number of parents and family members request that we assist them in finding their loved ones on the street. I've never had a parent who necessarily went this far to descend into homelessness themselves and then contact me on the other end to process that. That is, he contacts you after he's done this and says, will you read my account of it? Chris, what made you decide it should be read to an audience? You know, oftentimes when we're out there advocating for people experiencing homelessness, we're asking people to humanize them by imagining them as somebody's son or daughter. And this offered just as clear an opportunity to do that, to um, have the father's voice speaking to the experience. And I thought that deserved to be to be heard. I guess inherent in that is the idea that, what, people dehumanize those who are homeless and need to rehumanize them? Yeah, there's a real sense of uh, those people are the other. And until we get to know their name and know what they look like when we look them in the eye, until we actually form a relationship, they can pretty safely be the other. And we, we don't have to humanize them. In fact, all kinds of horrible things have happened when we've decided not to humanize people and just make them the other. What does that mean for those who are homeless? Uh, They become invisible. I had one guy tell me um, when he flies his sign on the corner. um, That is when he holds his sign asking for money. Correct. Yeah. He said, it's like my superpower. It's like putting on a cape and I instantly become invisible. And he said, that's a horrible feeling. He says, and I know why they do it. In fact, he said it with no angst or anger, just as sort of a matter of fact. But at the moment, he's requesting something from someone. 
They don't make eye contact. They don't make eye contact. He says cars driving by generally always are adjusting their radio. They're always looking at their phone. Uh, Jerry, you were a stand-up comic in L.A. before moving to Denver to become a pastor. Your church feeds homeless folks in Civic Center Park. And uh, let's hear a bit more from your rehearsal. So the voice you're bringing to life of Frank, Frank is anticipating his trip to Denver, as we said, to live on the streets with his son. I'm scared to death. I'm 54 years old. I don't even like to camp. Think about something that you've never done. Being homeless, of all things. But I swallow hard and I think, Denver, here I come. I decide I'm going to carry a backpack with a kitty tent from Walmart, first aid kit, a flashlight, a water bottle, a few clothes, some thin gloves, and a piece of 4 by 6 plastic. It comes up to about 60 pounds. They tell me you have to travel light. Chris, do you think if Frank had called you beforehand and said, I'm thinking of doing this, that you would have advised him to do so? I think I would have. I think I would have asked to be as resourceful to him as I could. But um, who would it be of me to tell a father not to go find his son, you know, on the streets? And again, the number of calls that we get where the extent of what a parent maybe knows how to do is to ask for the city to kind of keep an eye out. Can you keep an eye out for my family member, whether it's an uncle, whether it's a son? What a profound experience to hear that this father was going to have the courage to descend on the streets himself. And not only that, but then after that, to pick up the pen and write about it was tremendous to me. What appealed to you about this project, Jerry? I I think Chris put it really well. It's the idea that here's a perspective we almost never hear. You know, I'm, I'm in the park all the time, almost every day, and I see a snippet. I see an hour of folks' lives, but have no idea what happens the other 23 hours of the day. Frank wrote a piece that lets us dive into that and see what happens at 3 a.m. in the morning when you can't find a place to sleep. What do you remember of his essay in that regard? His pain and just the We've been walking all night looking for a place. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. We finally found some place. We put our stuff down and rats are running over our legs. You can't make that up. I mean, it was extraordinary to just get a vision of that, just see through that window for just a moment. There is a connection to this story for you more than just that you're reading it because there's a scene actually from Civic Center Park where a church group is feeding the homeless and it's your group. It's our, right. It's our, he literally in the, uh, in the manuscript, he writes, he goes, there's this church group and they, uh, they do this great like, – there's peanut butter and jelly sandwich, granola bar, chips, piece of soft fruit. You know, it's a pretty good lunch and I'm like, he's reading our menu and I'm like, that's us. But I didn't know it until that moment uh. when I'm reading through there. And when we actually talked to Frank for the first time, the first words out of his mouth were, when I meet you, I owe you five lunches because you fed me that week. And that's pretty amazing. We don't always get that feedback. Well, let's hear more of what happens to Frank when he comes to Denver and finds his son. Well, Tommy's at the needle exchange. I got a couple hours to kill. I figure I might as well walk around the park. Civic Center Park is a beautiful place to visit or just hang out. It's got lots of trees and fountains. Loaded with flower beds and art displays. It's a really cool place. I walk around and observe. I notice that the public library is one block away. I recognize that it's the one that just a couple weeks prior, one of the Denver TV stations did a special undercover report on it. This library is huge. It looks pretty new. 
It's everything a library would possibly want. It's seven stories tall. And guess what? Of course, it's public. And yes, every day, 10 a.m., it fills up with attics. Once again, it's safe and it's warm. Restrooms are on every floor. It took me a couple days to figure out why the restroom stalls all had half doors. They have them that way so security can look in to see if people are in the stalls shooting up. There have been overdoses at the Central Library, and uh, in fact, staff there carries a drug to reverse overdoses. They even have social workers on hand. Chris, what insight does this reading offer into drug issues, would you say? I think its best insight is understanding um, the experience of fatherhood in the mix of that. You know, I don't know if the biggest insights are going to be how do we how do we logically work our way through addiction, but you can hear and understand that emotional anguish of the father, his struggle to really identify when to draw closer and when to let go. That clip starts with, while he's at the needle exchange, I'm going to go tend to something in my own life. It's so matter-of-fact in a way, but it's also I'm giving him that space, I guess, Jerry. Yeah. I was stunned by the fact that this was a story that I thought I knew. You know, I've been we've been down the park 10 years handing out lunches and suddenly recognize, no, you don't – you scratch the surface. There are parts of the story, each one of these individuals that come through line that you'll never know. So does Frank's son know that this was written, that it's being made public? What is the awareness there? What are the ethics even of that? I think Frank's son has – gotten the manuscript, uh, from what I understand, talking uh, with the father, with Frank. I'm uncertain if he's aware of the full production. I've kind of left carrying that to the father and his correspondence with his son. Hmm. At one point, Frank is by his son's side along the Platte River, uh, amongst other people shooting up. And as the week goes by, Frank starts to grow a beard And again, this is the father looking increasingly unkempt because he's living outside and he notices that it affects how people treat him. I am sick and tired of being treated like I am not a human being in need. People stereotype like it's beyond imaginable. And I mean everybody. People give you zero respect. And most people are just plain rude. They're not better than me. But because I look homeless, I get treated like a second-rate citizen. Reinforcing some of what we heard earlier about the invisibility of homelessness. So again, uh, that's you reading, Jerry, from Frank's words. This is going to be on stage in front of an audience. Will you be wearing like a costume or is there going to be anything on stage or what? There'll be a bench. There'll be me sitting on the bench. There'll be me reading from the journal. I'll probably keep the beard I'm wearing right now and... uh, Probably not dressed too different than this. Uh, T-shirt and jeans, a pullover. We we don't want it to be too theatrical, but we want it to be engaging, obviously. Uh, And we want to really put all the weight on the words and remind people constantly, this is a real experience. This is this father's heart being poured out on the page. You both work with folks who are homeless. Do you think this has changed anything about how you approach your work, Chris? Maybe uh, changes how I approach those who are close to people in homelessness, how much time and energy and availability I have to provide. Jerry? I think it reinforced what we sort of intrinsically knew over time, and that is the lunches are great. 
but they're really just a they're a vehicle, they're a tool, they're just the instrument that we use to have face-to-face -face The lunches you serve in Civic Center. Absolutely. Are. And the yes. recognition that for so many people who are on the street, just someone that will see them, look them in the eye, ask them how their day was, acknowledge them, make them human, that's the only moment they get that all day. You know, for me, it was, I think because it was the father-son relationship, I, I just had this image of Frank holding his son as a baby. And thinking every person who is uh, on the streets was held presumably. I suppose that there are ways in which their childhoods may have been very difficult. But presumably there was some love when they were welcomed yes. into this world. Yeah. There was a moment in the manuscript where Frank talks about his, uh, his son nodding off on the public trance on the bus on 16th Street. And he says the whole time there's this little boy taking it all in. And watching him, and he goes, and that little boy reminded me when Tommy was a little boy. And just this instantaneous moment where the father flashed back to, I remember when my son was a little kid, was that age. And, and just the juxtaposition between the two was stunning. Yeah. Right. And I, I think in my first reading, I, I pulled the title, um, I'll Be With You Every Minute of the Day. It's a sentence that comes up in the in the first few uh, senses of, of the manuscript. And it made me pause, um, not because of, of a poignant resonance about homelessness or about addiction, but because of fatherhood. Mm. Uh, I'll be with you every minute of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that I could say to my son as I'm dropping him off of daycare. You know, I will always be with you is what the father's saying. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. It's been great. Thank, thank you, you so much for thank having you us. So much. Chris Connor of Denver's Road Home and Pastor Jerry Herships are bringing to life an essay written by a father who spent a week on the streets with his son. To learn how the story ends, catch the dramatic reading and panel discussion June 5th at the McNichols Building in Civic Center Park, where Frank, the dad, will be in attendance. Cash welfare for Colorado's poorest families hasn't increased in nearly a decade. The state now has a proposal to raise that assistance, but it's getting serious pushback from Colorado counties. Their objection isn't over the need for an increase, though. It's how to pay for it. CPR's Mike Lamp talked with our colleague Sam Brash about the people who might be affected. So about 17,000 families receive cash assistance in Colorado each month. And these are some of the poorest families in the state. To even qualify, a family of three cannot be making more than 27% of the federal poverty line each year. So that's about $6,000. And to stay in the program, families have to participate in classes or training programs meant to get them a job. And what is the state now proposing? So the Colorado Department of Human Services is seeking a 10% increase for families that receive grants through the Federal Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, or TANF. That's the official name for the program that most people just know as welfare. And for a family with one parent and two kids, that amounts to an extra $46 above the current limit of $462 a month. Advocates and officials pushing this increase say it's long overdue, that the value of these grants just has 
hasn't kept up with inflation or the cost of living in Colorado. And who would pay for the increase? So that's the crucial point here. There's no new money for this increase. But most counties currently aren't spending all of the money they get for TANF. They put some of it into a reserve, into savings. So the state, it's saying to counties, you can't keep stocking away this much money each year. You need to actually spend it on cash assistance grants. And counties object to that? Yeah, well, a lot of them really rely on these savings for other programs like child care assistance or child welfare. Julie Crow directs human services for El Paso County. That's the county that contains Colorado Springs. And she says this proposed increase has really put counties in a tough spot. We as counties have legal custody of many of the children in our child welfare system. Would any of us ever feel comfortable not having any savings in the bank to meet our own children's needs? Colorado Counties, Inc., which represents all 64 counties in the state, is also opposed to this plan. But the state thinks that counties can afford the increase. Yeah, the state does think counties can afford this increase. If you look across all the counties, they've banked about $50 million in cash welfare grants. And just last year, they stocked away about $10 million in TANF money. So the state estimates this increase would cost about $8 million a year. So it insists that this isn't hitting counties with something they can't pay for. It's just changing how they do business. But counties point out those reserves aren't spread out evenly across the state. There are 15 counties that are actually actually on schedule to deplete their reserves this year, even without this increase. Does this say something about the different ways that the state and the counties prioritize helping poor people? I think it does, because this is a fight over limited resources, and the state has sort of put its cards on the table here. It's making it clear it sees cash welfare as a hand up, not a hand out for poor families in the state. Now, Congress is also considering potential reforms to the federal welfare program, and that's for the first time in decades. Is that weighing into this debate between Colorado counties and the state? Yeah, that's definitely a factor. County representatives really think it's unwise to tinker with the program on the state level when there could be sweeping changes on the federal level. Advocates think just the opposite, that Colorado could be sending the wrong message by letting counties hold on to TANF money. They worry that could lead Congress to believe there's no demand for cash assistance grants. And where does this go from here? It goes to the State Board of Human Services, which is set to begin debate on this proposal June 1st, and a final decision is expected in July. That is CPR's Sam Brash talking about a state proposal to increase cash assistance for Colorado's poorest families. At Denver's South High, an unusual class meets in room 142, the newcomers class. They're all new refugees adjusting to an American culture that can be hostile and learning a brand new language. They start with simple words like pencil. Denver journalist Helen Thorpe spent a year with these students, even traveling to a country some of them fled. Her book, The Newcomers, is a finalist for this year's Colorado Book Award. Let's listen back to our conversation from last fall. Helen, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Take us into this newcomer's class on the first day. Uh, What did it look like? What did it sound like? So this room changed so much over time. At the outset, it was a really, really quiet room, and there were very few kids in the room. Um, There were just seven kids there on the first day of school, and um, the number even went down from there as two kids learned so much English, they moved upstairs. So there were just five kids for a little while. 
Um, and it was very, very quiet. The kids weren't saying anything. They were just terrified. And at the outset, I worried, can I even write about this room? Hmm. They were quiet in part because they didn't speak English. Right. And this is this is an acknowledged part of language acquisition. Yeah, they so, didn't speak English and they were overwhelmed. Those two things were true, I think. Yeah. And so they were listening to this new language, trying to understand their circumstances. Why do you think they were scared? Yeah, Well, I think it's an overwhelming experience to come from the parts of the world where they had been living to the United States. Our life here is just so different. And that's part of what I'm trying to show to readers, that spending time in this room, you can actually learn a lot about what we take for granted. Um, Some of these kids had never had a hot shower before or had not always had a roof over their heads or had been hungry. And, uh, you know, in America we can take our hot showers for granted and not think about the fact that that's actually unusual. You talk about the fact that at the beginning of the year at South High School, this class for refugees, the newcomer class, is small, but the size fluctuates. I just want to read a portion from the book that explains why. Please. Over the coming year, the strife-ridden parts of the planet would dispatch many more students to this teacher. His name is Mr. Williams, who has this class. They turned up uh, that way every year. Higgledy-piggledy, not when the calendar advised. Some of them would arrive looking alarmingly thin. They could be anywhere from 14 to 19, and some did not know exactly how old they were. Right. Yeah. Um, so, as as you were mentioning, these kids arrive scared, they're overwhelmed, and they are also in a phase called the silent phase of language acquisition. So they arrive in, in you know, looking just, just like that passage that you've read. And the teacher's job really is to uh, help them settle, help them acclimate, help them feel trust. And so he does a lot of talking at the outset, just trying to gain their confidence and make them feel like they can start pronouncing these strange English words and he won't make fun of them or laugh at them or tell them they're doing it wrong. And they may trickle in throughout the school year, depending on what the status of refugees is, how many the United States is taking in and how many are coming to Colorado. The teacher in this case is a man named Eddie Williams. Tell me about him. I just was in awe after I spent a year in his company at what he was able to accomplish. So Eddie Williams is six foot four inches tall. He's a soccer player, a soccer coach, as well as a teacher. He's an incredibly kind man. He's very introverted, very thoughtful, highly sensitive. You know, some some teachers excel because they can entertain a whole class at the front of the room. They're sort of like actors. In exactly. That His gift really is to meet each kid right where that kid is and know exactly what that particular student needs to thrive. And he is teaching students from many different countries and with many different languages. By the end of the year, he had 22 students who spoke 14 languages and used five different alphabets. Wow. Your own family background, I think, was part of what led you to write this book. Tell me about that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, but my parents had immigrated to this country. And um, just in our household, my mom, uh, she wasn't really like, she didn't read us stories at night. She she told us stories. So every single evening of my childhood, I went to sleep after listening to my mom kind of describe some dramatic thing that had happened on this farm in rural Ireland where she grew up. She was one of 10 kids. Um, she told stories like all the, you know, about all the chores she had to do or the time that her dad loaned her out to a sister who didn't have kids of her own so that my mom would do all the chores on that farm. 
um, it was just a very different kind of childhood than the one I was having. And for me, it was very natural to then try to, as an adult, as a journalist, seek out people who'd grown up in other countries and try to listen to their stories about what life was like in some other place. Suffice it to say, they've really dealt with the worst the planet has to offer by the time they land at Denver South High School. I mean, uh, famine, incredible violence, the death of close family members. They arrive with a traumatic past. That's true. And they also arrive at a moment when their story is about to become much more joyful Mm. and where they finally feel safe. And I think that's what's missing from our conversation about refugee resettlement. We have a lot of headlines about how dire and difficult and terrible um, the state of the world is. But we forget that once a family's chosen to resettle, They're finding a safe home. They're feeling secure. They're getting the chance to start over. And they find this incredibly um, joyful, and they're very, very thankful. And again, the face of this for many of them in these first few days is this teacher, Eddie Williams, at South High School, who even has a pantry. He provides food to some of these families. In his classroom, there happened to be this closet that was filled with um, all sorts of food from lentils to rice and beans. And uh, on the first day of school, the teacher took his students in to show them, this is the food bank. You can take food here. And he knew they probably didn't understand his words. So he just started, you know, wordlessly handing out food to the kids. And they kind of, you know, beamed at him when he did that because they were actually hungry. South High in Denver is uniquely equipped to welcome these kids because apart from the newcomers class, it's a pretty diverse place. The school is the designated place where kids are 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 directed if they've had um, their schooling interrupted by war, most typically, and if they speak a foreign language other than Spanish. And so it, it is a place that's extraordinarily diverse. Um, a third of the kids are foreign born um, and have been in English language acquisition classes at some point. You were there during the 2015-2016 school year, a very politically charged time. Right. Uh, this is as Donald Trump was running for president, yeah. and he was quite critical of the refugee resettlement program. How did that affect the students? I think the students, especially from the Middle East, felt personally um criticized by by the rhetoric. And um, they also encountered over the course of the year increasing hostility, especially as they were in transit on city buses. They generally live, live about an hour away by public transit, and they were spending an hour on the buses in the morning and an hour in the afternoons going home. They felt safe inside of South, where there was a very accepting and understanding environment. But other commuters were generally where they ran into trouble. And as Trump kind of went on and on about um, how dangerous he felt mu- Muslim refugees might be, they they encountered increasing vitriol and hostility. They were called terrorists, for example. And, and the great tragedy is, I mean, the families here generally had um, supported the American invasion of Iraq and the American presence in the Middle East. And so Actually, the opposite was true. They had been fighting against terrorism themselves. Right. It is often true that refugees from Iraq 
uh, were forced to leave the country because they were seen as complicit with the United States and therefore targets. Yeah, and, and they so actively helped us. Helped this country, yeah. right? You say the faculty at South did everything they could to help the student body grapple with this unleashing of vitriol upon the foreign-born students. The number of kids who sought counseling reached levels that nobody had ever seen, and two students attempted suicide. Yeah, that was the week after the election. Yeah, an incredibly difficult time at South. Um, they The kids did decide to hold a press conference there, which I attended, which I, I love the fact that they wanted to turn around and then speak out uh, about what was happening. With so many different students, the class, the newcomers class fluctuating and as many different languages as there were, how did you keep track for this book? So I actually, at the outset, found it a very bewildering environment. Um, I think the teacher himself, you know, he had done this for many years. He was actually a master teacher coaching other teachers as well as teaching these students. So he was familiar with the countries that were producing refugees and what languages the students spoke. But to me, I had never heard of some of the languages before, like, like what? Tigrinya and Karen. So Tigrinya is the most common language in Eritrea, and Karen is widely spoken by the you know Karen ethnic minority in Burma. But I didn't know that those languages even existed. So when the kids showed up, I was having trouble at first um, just tracking who was in the room and what their names were and what languages they spoke. So I made this color-coded chart on a whiteboard in my office where I, um, you know, if, if a kid arrived speaking Spanish, they might be in red. And if a kid arrived speaking Arabic, they would be in, say, purple. Um, what what happened when I looked at my whiteboard was actually I could then see which kids were very alone or isolated because they were the only ones speaking mm. that particular language. And then I, I, I watched that play out in the classroom as those kids were especially isolated from others at first. Uh, how closely tied are, there, are they to their old countries? Um, do, do they have a lot of contact with family back home? So um, when I say back home, I actually mean at their former home. Right. So so. Uh, Many of the families who arrive here um, are coming, be, and, and there there might be a whole community from the country that they're originally from. So uh, the largest number of students in the room were from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the country that sent the most refugees to the U.S. last year and the year before. And there's a pretty big and growing Congolese community in Denver, and they remain very tied, I think, to their, to their country um, of origin. Uh, I also spent a lot of time with an Iraqi family. And um, in that case, you know, they had left Iraq about a decade earlier and had been essentially wandering around the Middle East. And their closest relationships were, were with other Iraqis who were also displaced. Perhaps in Syria. Correct. They were all living somewhere else, Syria or Turkey. Um, so they're not so tied to Iraq itself as much as they are to um fellow displaced Iraqis elsewhere. And so it's really important to keep in mind that for a lot of refugees, the journey did not begin when they left their home country. The journey may have been years, decades long before they arrive in the United States. Yeah, it's a long and wandering path here. You focus a lot on four students in particular. Let's start with a pair of sisters from Iraq. Yeah. Um, Mariam and Jacqueline. So Mariam and Jacqueline walked into the classroom in October 2015, and right away, um, you know, they were introduced to the class as being from Iraq. And right away, you know, just from the expressions on their faces and how they were behaving, you could see how intelligent they were, but also that they were very um, 
sad and distressed. Uh, they had trouble engaging with their the schoolwork. I, I was very curious about them. I was wondering, you know, what are the impediments? What what is the difficulty here? I could I could see it manifesting, but I I didn't know why. And also, one sister began wearing a hijab or a headscarf, and the other one didn't, and that was mysterious to me. And I was just wondering, you know, why is one sister covering her hair, not the other one? Um, are they both Muslim? And you know, why would they differ? So. I ultimately had to hire a translator in order to find out the answers to any of my questions and then visit them at home, uh, which was an amazing experience getting to know that family. And this draws you closer to the family and particularly to their mother, right. who, who's really struggling herself. It's a bit of the adult perspective on refugee resettlement. Getting outside of the classroom was very illuminating. Spending time in the homes of the students was really where I began to feel a deeper connection to them and to their parents. In their case, their mom was a single mother. She had lost their father during the Iraq War after he sided with the Americans. And he's missing, presumed dead, probably killed because of his cooperation with U.S. forces. And um, that was that created their impoverishment. Like many Iraqi households, it's a single mom with children, and that's a very typical structure. So their breadwinner is missing. And in essence, they've been struggling ever since the, the loss of their father. Um, so she's trying to make it in the U.S. as a single mom without English. You know, she's trying to find work, uh, and the girls are struggling at school at the outset and really, really missing their dad. Um, and they also had seen horrific things. So uh, they fled from Iraq to Syria and um, encountered the Syrian civil war unexpectedly. They lived through horrific car bombings in their neighborhood and had had really like seen firsthand, um, you know, bloodshed, war. Um, and were recuperating, and they had post-traumatic stress. So they had a lot of hurdles to get over. Two other students who saw atrocities firsthand as well are the brothers from Congo, Solomon and Methuselah. Solomon and Methuselah impressed me right away as the two students who showed up just completely ready to learn. So whatever difficulties they'd had, um, they somehow were uh, ready um to put those behind them and to face forward and to just take advantage of every second they had in this country right away. And that's the, that was a question I had when I when I saw them showing up and just absorbing English faster than anybody else. I was wondering, well, why are those two kids so ready to learn and who are their parents and how are they doing such a spectacular job that their kids are just ready to go from day one? What was the answer? Well, visiting their family at home, I found... Um, an intact family, both parents, very stable, loving environment at home, um, a, a, a couple who were um, uh, very affectionate and um, very dignified and very graceful. Uh, they constantly wanted to feed me meals. And I was just marveling at the home environment that they'd managed to hold on to through unbelievable difficulty themselves. And one thing I, I discovered was that in Congolese culture, there's a real prohibition and in terms of talking about difficulty. So the family didn't really want to tell me their story. They didn't really want to say why they'd had to leave the Congo. They felt that it would cause me an emotional burden, Hmm. and they wanted to protect me from their own difficult past. Well, this is in part what drives you to visit the Congo and to understand what they came from. Yeah. I, um, I went around Denver, and I was asking various people, you know, 
uh, how can I get to know the Congolese community better? I'm, I'm meeting this one family. I'm, I'm trying to learn about their origins. And I, I discovered that a friend of mine had organized a trip for some Air Force instructors. So I went with them to the Congo and I felt safe in their company. They were studying demilitarization or why militia groups had taken over the Congo, especially on the eastern side, and what was happening there as the United Nations tried to demilitarize that area. So I went along and learned a lot about what had caused this one family to flee. You learn uh, sort of micro on the ground what affected that family, but you also learn macro. You visit a hospital, for instance, that specializes in repairing injuries from rape because rape is so commonly used as a tool of war there. Rape is epidemic in that part of the Congo. And um, when I found some studies looking at what teenagers like Solomon and Methuselah might have survived or witnessed, I found that nine out of 10 teenagers their age in that part of the Congo had experienced firsthand traumatic events. Two-thirds had seen their home burn. Two-thirds had seen someone die. One-third had witnessed the act of rape. One-fifth had been abducted themselves. So, So incredible Um, atrocities and difficulty. Yeah. It is against that backdrop that I find it amazing at how often refugee families succeed and how quickly they become self-sustaining. I think the mistake that we make as Americans um, kind of taking in the news of refugees is to think that their stories are only grim or depressing, which I think elicits in us a feeling of wanting to turn away or hopelessness. In fact, when you actually meet refugee families, you find people who are unbelievably resilient and who are who have survived so many things. By the time they come here, they feel that that life here is tremendously more easy, uh, that that they're finally being given an opportunity to, to thrive in a safe home. And they are so filled with joy. They're so thankful. And um, they're very celebratory. The experiences I had with refugee families, you know, were were um, much more f- fun and positive than the headlines would make you think those mm-hmm. experiences would be. And it was really incredible to watch the teenagers blossom in the classroom and sort of, you know, uh, start being interested in one another, having crushes on one, one another, inviting each other for sleepovers, that sort of thing. Denver author Helen Thorpe Her latest book, The Newcomers, is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. It's based on the year she spent with refugees at South High School. We spoke in November. Seniors at South graduate tomorrow, by the way. Now some Colorado baseball history. An all-black team called the White Elephants... This team, one of the best in the state, was sponsored by a businessman named A.H.W. Ross. And incidentally, the former hotel he ran, the Rossonian, in Denver's historically black Five Points neighborhood, is in for big renovations. There are plans to reopen it as a hotel, restaurant, and lounge. More about this team and Ross from baseball historian Jay Sanford. Hi, Jay. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Before we talk about the team... Maybe a little bit about the man who made it happen. So A.H.W. Ross took over what was then the Baxter Hotel and put his name on it. Some of the most famous names in jazz played there, stayed there. We're talking Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong. 
How important was the Rossonian Hotel in Denver in, say, the 1920s and 30s? Oh, it was very important. The hotel, as you were mentioning, the uh, jazz musicians that came into town often were at places such as the Brown Palace, uh, yet they couldn't stay at the Brown Palace. Oh, I see. They could perform in those hotels, but they couldn't stay there because they were black. Correct. Couldn't stay there, couldn't eat there. So they stayed at the Rossonian, which was the next best option. It was a luxurious hotel for the time. And so many of the jazz musicians stayed there. All right. A.H.W. Ross started his baseball team, the White Elephants, in 1915. Correct. How popular was baseball in Colorado back then? Baseball has always been the sport in Colorado, going back to the 1860s, if you will. The first game was played here in 1862, just two years after the city of Denver was established. So it grew from that point. And at the turn of the century, there were over 200 men's teams in the town of Denver, which was a town then. 200, just in Denver? Just in Denver. Okay. How unusual was it to have an all-black team? There were several, but still uh, proportionately a much smaller number. Okay. Who were some of the other black teams? Oh, we had the Colorado Champions. We had the Black Diamonds, the ABCs, the Lipton Tees. The we Lipton a, Tees. It yes. sounds like that was a sponsorship deal, maybe. Well, it, we had a Lipton Tea plant here. And so the employees there uh, a lot were African-American, so they had a black baseball team. Uh, the, the name White Elephants for an all-black team, was, was that to be tongue-in-cheek? What do you know about the name? Uh, they uh, adopted that name from the Philadelphia Athletics, which is now the Oakland Athletics. Connie Mack owned that team, yeah. and he sold off a lot of his players around 1910. And uh, so he won without his stars, with the replacement players that he had, they won. And so he jokingly called his team the White Elephants. The White Elephants, okay. So they adopted that name from Connie Mack's team. Now, did the White Elephants primarily play these other black teams? No. They they did play the other black teams, of course, but they played uh, white teams as well. I see. So the teams themselves weren't necessarily integrated, but the games were. Correct. That's, That's correct. Was that a big deal back then? Not in Denver. It would have been in other communities. but uh, Maybe in the Deep South or something. Yes, or the Midwest or the East. Denver was more of an open city on many things. We had legalized gambling for a long time. We had championship boxing matches because of legalized gambling here. I didn't know that. Yes. So we, we were just more of an open city. And as you know, Colorado was the second state to grant women the right to vote. Uh, of course, I think in the the background of the KKK's presence here, so it's right. not that it was all lollipops by no. any means. No, it certainly wasn't. Just uh, more advantageous for African Americans than other places, but certainly not a, a cakewalk. It was all relative back then. Yes. Why do you call the White Elephants a black ball club and not a Negro League team, uh, which is a phrase I think like, I've heard more often. Well, the Negro League was actually a league, like the National League and the American League that we have today. Uh-huh. The Negro League was an, an actually functioning league, fully professional. The White Elephants were a semi-pro team, as most teams were west of the Mississippi. How good were they? They were excellent. They played in a seven-state area here, all comers, black teams, white teams, and they were, they were just a top-notch team. We had the uh, Denver City League uh, each year, and, and twice the White Elephants won that league. And like I said, at, sometimes there were over 200 teams in the, in the city. So back to this businessman— H.W. Ross. Did he make money running this team? 
There were years I'm sure he did, (laughs) (laughs) but many years he did not. He just loved the game, and uh, he loved his community. And it was important to the community to have representation, and that's that's why he did it. At the time, the Denver Post sponsored a major baseball tournament, yes. sometimes called the Little World Series. Correct. I wrote a book about the Denver Post tournament. And in 1934, uh, they did something that changed the course of baseball. What yes. what happened in 34? There was a man living here who had been the greatest third baseman in the Negro Leagues, and his name was Oliver the Ghost Marcel. And he had moved to Denver after playing. And uh, he went to Paul Parsons, the editor of the sports department of the Denver Post, who uh, was over the Denver Post tournament. So he suggested that they bring a black team in for the first time. And that that had not happened in this little World Series before. It had not. And it hadn't happened at any level in the country. This was the first time that black teams played against white teams on in a true competition where it wasn't considered exhibition. Mm. So there were games prior to that, but they were all, always considered exhibition. This was true competition for the money. What happened? The uh, Monarchs came in second. They lost to the House of David, if you can imagine. And the, the Monarchs were the Negro League team, right? Yes, that's yeah, correct, out of from Kansas City. Kansas City. And uh, But the House of David had two ringers. They had a man called Satchel Page pitching for him. Uh-huh. Who was <laughs> I from know the that Negro name. League, yes. And uh, uh, they had Cy Perkins, who was the catcher also from the Negro Leagues. Uh, and what impact would you say that tournament had? Uh, maybe on the White Elephants, for instance. Well, on the White Elephants, uh, that was in 34. And in 35 was the last year the White Elephants were together. So they played 21 seasons, which was a long time for yeah. teams to stay together. But they uh, dispersed because the players then were also playing for white ball clubs in the city. There had been integration. Yes, and it came about because of the monarchs coming in in '34 for the post tournament, and that began the integration in the country. These teams were from all over the country as well as Canada, so they went home and began to integrate their leagues in their own towns, small towns or cities, and uh, that was the beginning of integration of baseball. I mean, who knew that Denver played such a pivotal role in that shift? Few people. Few people. More now, hopefully. <laughs> yes, hopefully more. Are there white elephant players still alive? No. No. No, they're, they're gone. I, I knew a number of the men uh, back in the 1980s. There were still a handful of them left. Tell and, me about a con- – I imagine you tried to have a conversation with oh, them. Oh, I did uh, with several. Uh, there, uh, They had some great names too. Uh, there was uh, Boogie Woogie Pardue. Boogie Woogie Pardue. Uh, great nicknames they had. Uh, Pistol Pete Albright. And uh, he he was the star of the team. He was a great player. He played in the Negro Leagues, by the way. And uh, the only uh, uh, guy from the White Elements to do so. And uh, so I, I met some of the men. I got a picture from uh, one of the family members uh, probably in the 1970s. I can't remember exactly which, which player it was. You've actually brought it with you today. Yes. A nice-looking picture of these these gentlemen. Uh, so A.H.W. Ross folded the team in 35. Right. He passed away just a few years after that. Yes. And before we go, I understand you know something of a secret about him. What A.H.W. stood for, these yes. initials? Yeah, his name was Albert Henderson Wade Ross. And uh, professional men of that era often went by initials. Like today, we have nicknames. There, Then they used initials. So he was a professional man. He owned an iron and steel business. And uh, so he went by his initials. Got it. More of the Rossonian story. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. 
Baseball historian Jay Sanford discussing Denver businessman A.H.W. Ross, who managed the Rossonian Hotel in Five Points and sponsored the black baseball club The White Elephants, one of the best in Denver from 1915 to 1935. You can learn more about the Denver Post baseball tournaments at Play Ball, currently at History Colorado. As for the Rossonian, a man from a different sport, former Denver Nugget Chauncey Billups, is a partner in the project to reopen it in 2019 as a hotel, restaurant, and lounge. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.